Hey, Javon, guess what? What? Alchemist, the Emacs mode. They extracted Alchemist server, which is a I saw I Python that. thing, which is weird, which uh, does stuff. Uh, like does autocomplete and other other things for for Elixir. So now there's an alchemist.vim that uses that. And I tried it last night. It works really well. You can put in a module name and you hit. I have it set to hit tab with a omnicomplete, and it shows me all the uh, functions. That's awesome. Yeah, and then you can uh, you can shift K capital K on something and bring up the doc. Hey Justin. Yo. Guess what? Emacs. <laughs> Emacs. <laughs> I bet it is, but I just have like I have. I have a lot of them plugins. I know how to use most of them. I think a lot of them are baked into Emacs, or at least I mean Space Max. Be suppressed. Yeah. Although I'm still floundering with project management. What does that mean? Like if I work in one project all day, Emacs, the way I use Emacs is fine for me, but I have a hard time shuffling multiple projects. Like I was oh, good at, at using Tmux and having like one like iTerm like Tmux session per project but i do you not use get lost i use a gui emacs Uh, and i'm reluctant to switch because i put most of my bindings on like command so i have like command (laughs) everything so i can't do that if i move back to terminal once you get used to buffers like once you get used to the giant buffer list it's amazing like i'm inside multiple projects during the day and i don't care anymore because the fuzzy find like so if you open two gem files and say one project is called Apple and Orange, and you uh, you can scope the buffers by Orange, so then it'll only show you Orange buffers. So then technically you're only working in like the Orange project. So I never close Emacs now, and it, it opens in a daemon once my computer boots. And that, I just how do you do, do that with uh, like a plist? With the launch agent, yeah, yeah, okay. uh, and running running Emacs as a daemon mode, so Emacs dash dash daemon. And then use Emacs client to connect to it. I tried using uh, Emacs GUI last week because Emacs GUI was very pretty. Uh, but for some reason, like going from my editor's warps, like I have to be in the same same app. Maybe if I use a IDE one day, I'll have to get used to that. But so I have trouble being in two different Ruby projects. So I use RVM still because um, I'm old school, and there's like an RVM use command in Emacs, but it just changes the RVM for the whole Emacs. So if I want to run tests in two different projects, it's kind of a hassle as opposed to uh, two different Tmux windows. Interesting. So I've actually been using Vim half the time. And I use uh, Emacs so much like Vim, like nothing even changes except I'll screw up and on like my fuzzy finders on two different key bindings. And that's the thing I'll like mess up all the time. So what's RVM? RVM for Ruby. Is that a joke? Yeah. <laughs> Do you use RVM Len? Yeah, I've used. I've never used it. Anything else? Oh my, oh my jeez. I used RBM <laughs> font and hate and hated it. And never went RBN back. is uh, a good idea, terribly implemented. Uh, Ch Ruby is very nice. I've never had a problem with RBM. So Ch Ruby, all you need to do to switch Ruby version, right, is you need to change your path so that Ruby and IRB and other things are pointed to the right executable, and you need to set your uh, gem path or gem home or whatever it is, so that uh, Ruby knows where to get your libraries. And that's all you need to do to change a Ruby version. So CH Ruby just does those things with a very, very thin interface around it. And then use that in conjunction with Ruby-install, which installs Ruby versions. And by default, they both go, they both look in the same uh, places. I think uh, in your home directory, .rubies. Isn't yeah. your Emacs problem a problem, Len, with RVM? Well, I don't know how it would change with uh, CH Ruby. I don't know if it would at all. 
Oh, because you're running your process doesn't have the right Ruby version. Right. I didn't start it in my project directory. <laughs> right. That's what I do with them. Yeah, like I'll, I'll be I'll be in a project and I'll have the wrong Ruby version selected and I'll start Vim and none, none of my Ruby stuff will work in Vim. And then I'll just exit Vim and switch to the right Ruby and then go back and then it works fine. Last week was lab week at my work. What does that mean? Um, it's a week where you can work on something that's not on your roadmap that you think would be useful to the company. What are you working Most on? Most people just... So I worked on... Uh, so in Philly, I worked on a couple of projects. I worked on a, a Slack bot with uh, Mike Ball uh, that uses console watchers oh. and then alerts Slack when a node is down. Uh, Did you know in... that HashiCorp's console enterprise also supports that feature? <laughs> Out of the box. Maybe I'll let him know that. That's pretty cool, though. What, what was the bot written in? Go. Oh. Then for my team, I worked on getting a better continuous integration set up. Maybe it could be considered delivery, too. Uh, so we used tried using Drone, which is an open source CI tool, but I had some trouble with uh, our GitHub Enterprise, but I patched it over the weekend, and now we're using it. Hmm. Uh, but initially, we used Travis. We are currently trying out Travis. What do you think of the options you've tried so far? Drone's great for, for being free and hosting it yourself, and they're really responsive. Uh, only downside is written in Go. <laughs> Why is that a downside? I don't know Go. Okay. That's it's kind of hard. I found it very difficult. I don't know why. It's... I think just debugging in it, it doesn't have a REPL. That's just a big, I guess, barrier for me. I can't <laughs> try things out. It's not a dynamic language, so it doesn't have... Yeah. Doesn't feel like languages that we're probably used to. Mm -hmm. But it's good. I like the simplicity of Go. It's, it's unique. So you push code, um, it builds the artifact, and then we use Packer to um, to build an AMI. And then my other teammate worked on some Ansible stuff that used the AMI to sort of spin up infrastructure for this specific app. Nice. Yeah. So it's pretty cool. Uh, I didn't really. Go, I didn't go to the science fair, so I don't know what other people worked on. But if you want to have a lab week at an awesome company, you should work at Comcast because awesome people listen to the podcast. You also get to work with Elixir and Go all the time, so there's that. That is true. That is true. Although we frown upon Go. Just kidding. My team doesn't use Go. We were just. I was just using Go for uh, or looking at Go because Drone is written in Go. I do know some other teams that do use it. Yeah, I'm not particularly good at, at writing Go or uh, debugging it, but I recognize that it's a very it's a simple language, uh, which allows anybody that knows Go to just hop on and like start working on something. They don't need to like know a lot of conventions about like how your app is structured or other things. Um, just like usually the li the libraries that you use are very clear to understand what's happening, uh, and and just the of, uh... iteration time is very fast too, compiling and deploying with no dependencies. My debugging was just a bunch of put statements, and I was messaging you like, "Why isn't this showing yeah. up?" Uh, I, was like, I don't know. I'm not but, going to ask. But uh, even though it's simple, and you were talking about jumping in on the project, I really missed sort of that structure of where things go. Like if I go into a, a Phoenix project or a Rails project, um, or maybe that's just because it's a web app. I mean, even the small Ruby services that we have, like. I could have jumped in and sort of know where the app starts, like what's the entry point. 
I couldn't do that with Jerome for some reason. Hmm. Maybe I was blinded by the uh, curly braces, but uh, so maybe like, is there? Do you know if any other ways to structure your apps that people recommend, like a web app? Uh, there are web frameworks that have some kind of structure, I'm sure. But mm-hmm. if you look at the HashiCorp tools, they all they all follow like a similar structure of like, and they're usually command line tools. They follow a similar structure of like entry point and then like configuration and then. Uh, plugins. There's a plugin system that we typically use. I Gox is cool though. Gox is awesome. Uh, Thanks for putting me onto that. Yeah, Gox is a uh, cross compilation utility for Go, which Go supports like out of the box, but Gox makes it a little simpler. Um, and it also supports uh, building for Windows. So essentially, like on your Mac, you can build for Mac, Linux, Windows, FreeBSD, ARM, whatever. Like you can build like. Uh, also, 32-bit and 64-bit architectures. You can build binaries for all of these from one machine. And I think for Windows, it has to like go get some special code package from somewhere to be able to do that. But yeah, my project depended on some C Cigo stuff, and it just, I just had to make a Vagrant machine to do it. It just would not work on Mac. Hmm. I think that's because of like some not Gox's fault, but my machines didn't have like a certain setup working, and I couldn't figure out what. So I just made a Vagrant box that had the Ubuntu version. Yeah, I have a couple of Go command line utilities, and on Travis, I have it set to build for Mac and Linux using Gox, and then it um, it tars the result and uploads it to GitHub releases. Nice. So whenever I push a tag, it just makes a release with all the code already compiled. I'll put a link to one simple utility. What's the general uh, vibe on your your team with Go? Yes, enjoy it. You all enjoy it. I mean, my vibe, like I don't, <laughs> I don't want to use it for everything. Yeah. But HashiCorp okay. really likes it. Okay. So next week is ETE, or I don't know when is this podcast going out? This <laughs> this Friday. <clears throat> Len, I'm guessing you're not coming for it, but yeah. Justin will. Justin, you'll be there, right? I will be there. I'm trying to figure out what my schedule is going to be. If I'm just going to be there during the sessions, or if I'm going to be there uh, for any like after after conference stuff, like dinner. You should yeah. hang out one day. I would like to, but it's it's uh, logistically very hard with daycare and mm. daycare closes at six. My spouse gets home around seven thirty, so you can't really leave an eighteen month old home alone for two hours. <laughs> this is true. Tell the cats to watch her. Yeah, I haven't looked at the Philly T like the talks or anything. Is there anything you're looking forward to? I looked at some talks yesterday. I'm looking forward to the transducers talk. Transducers. Uh, transducers and sequences. And um, there's a React Native one that looks pretty good. The keynotes look pretty good. Do does Philly uh, ETE release the talks publicly, or is it just? I think they do. They uh, do. No, I don't think so. No, I thought last year they uploaded all the videos after like a month or so. Oh, they upload them, but I don't know if it's to the public or not. I mean, how else would they gate access to them? Like we don't have like a sign in. I don't have an ETE account. Mm. Yeah, I'm pretty sure they upload them publicly. Oh yeah, they're on YouTube. <laughs> that the hasn't always solutions. been the case. Uh, yeah, I think this new. I think that's fairly new. Jessica Kerr is giving a, a talk on Elm. Oh, cool. So she usually gives exciting talks. Um, Sean Cribbs is going to be talking about some Comcast stuff with Lua. So that'll be, that'll be pretty cool. I really want to learn Elm. Redux has me spoiled with the time-traveling debugger. I was saying in the pre-show, I was like working on something, uh, saw something like Flash really quick and spent like an hour tracking it down. 
so Elm the whole time is... I was just like muttering how much easier it would be if I had my time traveling debugger. Is Elm uh, Elm's a language, right? Yeah. And it's not a framework. You need to use a <clears throat> like if you're going to use like React or something, you need to put that on top of uh, Elm, right? You normally don't use. I mean, my understanding is you don't use JavaScript libraries as much as possible. So it does transpile to JavaScript, but it's actually a much different language, a much much different paradigm. Hmm. Yeah, I just after like CoffeeScript, I'm scared of using anything that's not native JavaScript in the future. Like, I, I, would, I would rather use TypeScript and just have its like ugliness and safety uh, balance those out instead of like learning something that's completely different. How is TypeScript different than anything else you transpile? It just seems to be uh, just plain JavaScript with like one thing added versus like a whole new language that you that you need to transpile. Like you could just like take my understanding at least. You could just take TypeScript and delete all the type signatures and it'd just be JavaScript. Is that it's probably incorrect though? <laughs> I think there might be a little more. But yeah, so uh, are, are you writing ES five like Barbarian? No, we're writing ES six, but that's a that's a JavaScript future standard, right? So one thing I feel like CoffeeScript, I think CoffeeScript's influenced JavaScript a lot. Uh, some people kind of discount it, but I think one thing that other compiled to JavaScript has it's usually like a language that's supporting it. So like ClojureScript. Like it's pretty much just closure, and there's lots of movement behind it, and it provides something that's different from what JavaScript has. So there's enough of a use case, I think. Um, so I don't, I don't know if ClojureScript will die anytime soon. I don't think so, because it's different. It provides something different enough to keep itself around, and it has the support of the closure language. You know what I mean? Versus yeah. Um, but I hear what you're saying. I had this discussion with someone yesterday about. JavaScript developers being more uh, proficient in JavaScript, and why should they? They could write a to-do app in a day. Like, why go to something like ClojureScript? TypeScript does have other things besides type signatures. There's interfaces and classes. But no, yeah, I um, I think that the reason you want to use language other than JavaScript is because JavaScript has properties about it that make common that that produce common bugs, right? Like, like, yeah. I feel like I've moved on past that. Of just you know JavaScript being a terrible language, just kidding. Uh, but for example, with ClojureScript, if you want to use the core racing stuff, um, with not writing callbacks the way the way you usually do, it's simpler in the mind. Um, no, so I, I, I think I it agree. Goes the... I think I think ClojureScript. You know, if you're already writing Lisp, I think it's a better mm-hmm. language to write your JavaScript in. I'm just scared of like investing time in any any language that's not going to have uh, wide wide appeal. Option. And, yeah, like like if I if I if I work on a side project in ClojureScript, like I, I it would be fun, right? If I was interested in Clojure. Um, but I can't really use that knowledge at work per se, because uh, I'm never going to convince my team to switch to ClojureScript. But I might convince them to switch to TypeScript. I might convince them to write a project in Elixir in the future. But I'm never going to convince like our team to use this language. It's nothing like the language that is supported by the browser. I guess this is a lot contradictory because I spent like couple of years just like learning languages and that was really fun but i just don't want to like start any projects that i want to be around for a while in some language with low adoption scholars i'm just yeah, interested in like a lot of people that i really come to are going crazy about elm right now elm seems awesome 
and remember I, the talk we went to a couple years ago or when the person gave the talk on elm and then he sent her the the box and the mid page and he's like why doesn't html HTML help us and then here at mario in like 30 minutes yeah that was that was a cool talk i like that a lot there's also elixir script so you can make this argument that if you're writing elixir on the server side you should be writing elixir script in the front end which might no, be a little never follow that argument <laughs> on a related unrelated note i've been playing with eddie ds lambda this week cool that thing that thing's really awesome and also kind of a mess how is it a mess the way that you write and deploy code is there's three ways you write code inline in the browser and hit save you zip up all the application code and upload it for each lambda function that you want to deploy you need to, like let's say you have like a bundle of code that has a bunch of lambda functions in it for each lambda function you create on aws you need to like upload a zip file for each one of them and then tell it which entry point that you want to use like which which uh, file and uh, function name. And then the third way is you can put in a zip file in S3 and tell it where the zip file is in S3, which is probably the best solution if you're trying to automate deployment. So, so my interest in Lambda, aside from using it, is automating it, which is kind of really difficult. Like I haven't actually successfully done it yet. Terraform has providers for um, AWS Lambda and also AWS API Gateway. So to create a Lambda function in the AWS console, I started with an example. I wrote some code locally, zipped it up, uploaded it, and then like after a bunch of trial error clicking around, I had it working. Um, and the, the, the UI kind of does a lot of things for you. But everything that Amazon provides also has an API behind it. If you do the same thing with an API, you need to create like six or seven different things. Like you need an API gateway, the Lambda function, the API, API gateway has um, Lambda function has some kind of policy that that uh, gates permission to, like who can run in and what it can do. Uh, those might actually be separate things. And then the API gateway, you need a the gateway, uh, a resource, which is I guess like uh, if you're making a REST API like in Rails, and you have like users. I guess like user would be a resource. Uh, you have a is it a method? I think a method goes on a resource. So like, so like users post, I guess like that would be the, the method on the resource. Um, and there's two, oh, there's a, there's a deployment. So you have deployment stages. So you can have like a, uh, they call them stages. So you could have like a, a staging stage and a pro production stage. And then you could like write functions in staging. And then like, once they're ready to go, you could deploy them to production by, by changing the stage they're deployed to or adding a stage. Um, and what was the other thing? Oh, there's an integration, which I don't actually know what that means. Uh, it might be like pointing the method at the Lambda function. I don't actually know. I still haven't successfully done it yet, but I'm very close. <laughs> Do you think someone's going to release another, their own Lambda? Uh, possibly. There, and I thought you were going to say like a framework for this. There is a framework called serverless, um, but and it's probably fine. It's all written in JavaScript. I'm using a Python AWS Lambda because it seemed like the least crappy of the three choices. You can you can write your Lambda function in Python, JavaScript, or Java. I'm not going to write Java. So you can use Clojure. Uh, no. <laughs> you can. You you can. Oh yeah, you can. But yeah, I guess you just would upload a jar file and then tell it the entry point is the the jar main, right? Yeah. Uh, AWS actually has a article on using Java with it. I mean, Clojure. 
Hmm, that makes sense. Could I, so could I compile Jade Ruby and use that? Probably. I wonder what the uh, like how it treats uh, startup. Like, let's say like somebody makes an API request. What is happening in the back end? Is your process like already sitting there waiting to handle a request, or does it have to like do I have to wait twenty seconds for Java to start? I imagine not. So I'm, cur- I'm curious to know. Yeah, like, I'm curious to do some like testing and like see like what the behavior is there. Jade Ruby would actually be pretty cool. Or closure. One thing I. One thing I do know is they do machine learning on your requests. So let's say at two o'clock every day, you get a bunch of requests, and there there will be some time, you know, for your lambda to scale out. Mm-hmm. Uh, they learn from pattern usage patterns. That's pretty cool. And sort of prime your system for for that. Yeah, the the benefit of benefits of it are really great. <clears throat> um, the ability to like write code that responds to HTTP requests or any other kind of event. And literally, like, never have to think about scaling it. Like, and not not just like Heroku, where like, oh, I push my app and now it's running. And then sometimes Heroku goes down. Sometimes I need to upgrade my database. Like, none of that stuff ever. You're still running a process on Heroku that you need to worry about. Whereas this is like literally your function, which is actually just a function in in a programming language, is your unit of deployment, and it's completely taken care of for you. Like how to how to scale it. Uh, logging and metrics were also built in, which is kind of nice. So like by doing nothing, I already had like logs outputting to CloudWatch and also some metrics. Um, that said, it seems a little rough around the edges from the user experience point of view. Like it wasn't really clear like how to control response codes. Like, everything worked and it responded 200 or whatever. Uh, and just the response that, are, that I responded from the function, that was fine. But like if there was invalid JSON, if the data wasn't valid, yada yada um it kind of like exposed some errors to the user which i wasn't really thrilled about i wouldn't be able to control like if this happens then then do this and i think you can do that i think it's in the model section or possibly the response section i don't think it's a tad too complicated for what it is maybe maybe the uh, api gateway not necessarily lambda itself or i think there needs to be some sort of layer on top of it um like maybe this could go in Terraform or some other tool, but I think we need like a DSL to describe describe all the um, requests and responses that are a little simpler than, than the APIs you use with Amazon today. Sounds like you have a side project, my friend. No, this is, <laughs> I'm doing something for work for this and I probably won't use it for a side project. I will use Phoenix for a side project though. Are you all ready for picks? I'll pick alchemist.vim if that didn't make it to the episode. Elixir integration for Vim is pretty cool. And uh, also this Elixir bot framework called Hedwig is pretty cool. Nice. I like creeping on your GitHub starring. Yeah. Because then I know all this already. <laughs> well, I find out. I should say I find out about some cool things. I saw that yesterday. All right, I can go. Uh, there is this tool called ToxyProxy. Uh, it's by the Shopify people. And... It's a way to introduce latency in your services. Um, you know, maybe turn Redis off randomly or turn MySQL off randomly um, or do some things to it. Uh, it's pretty cool if you want to stress test. Well, not stress test, but just mess with your, your environment. Um, there are clients for some languages. I was using the Ruby one. There's a Node, a Go, a .NET. PHP, Java. Uh, so yeah, you should check it out if you want to see how your uh, 
systems function in a not so great environment. And my music pick is the Kanye West album, even though that guy's a jerk. Uh, his new album has some pretty good songs on it. It's on iTunes now. It's no longer just entitled. So yeah, those are my picks. Um, so I'm gonna pick a board game. I'm gonna pick Five Tribes. Uh, I actually just learned that it plays really well with two people. I've always liked it for like three or four. Uh, so it's kind of a worker displacement game. Uh, a lot of strategy, kind of abstract theme, and that's it. So show notes are at Turing.cool slash 80. Follow us on Twitter at Turing Cool, and I'll talk to you all next week. See you. Bye.